This is Zeninish. This is Zeninish. conversation about eating disorders in adolescents. It's a topic that is very important. It's one that can be challenging to talk about and oftentimes families usually kind of deal with it in private. And so we wanted to have a conversation where we could talk about what it is and the things that we go through and maybe a positive way forward when uh, dealing with eating disorders. We're very happy to have a wonderful panel with us today. Um, we have uh, Miss Shanti Ma, we have Jenny. We also have with us Robin and Dave. And we also have Dr. Safi Biasetti, who does specialize in eating disorders. And so she will be our expert in this conversation that we have today. We're actually gonna start with you today, Dr. Safi Biasetti. And if you could just kind of give us an overview of of what exactly are eating disorders and how do they affect uh, adolescents? Sure. Thank you for having me on and uh, welcome to everyone on the panel as well. Um, So when we talk about eating disorders, we are talking about a few primary disorders. Um, There are some a little less known, but I'll talk about the more primary ones that we tend to deal with a little bit more. um, And that is anorexia nervosa, and uh, that's uh, an eating disorder whereby someone is restricting their food intake and um, over periods of time, and usually they're, um, and, but not always, and I want to emphasize this, so um, sometimes I'm going to say their body has an effect of that restriction by losing weight, uh, weight loss, but that's not always the case. And that's really important to emphasize. And it's part of the reason why a lot of cases of anorexia go unnoticed and undiagnosed for a long period of time. uh, Because in the past, we tended to look at someone uh, by uh, weight loss only as a diagnostic criteria, as part of the diagnostic criteria. Now we no longer do that, knowing that people of all sizes and shapes can be suffering with this disorder. So it's really important, um, I think, in our adolescent and young adult population as well uh, to know that. I could always say more about that. Um, but that's one of the primary disorders um, And it's also, unfortunately, one of the disorders, one of the mental health disorders as a whole that has the highest risk of really serious complications, both in the body, uh, so medical complications, and also the highest risk of death out of any mental health disorder, which most people are not aware of. Um, and that usually also comes along with a lot of, uh, body image, uh, issues, a lot of body image struggles. Uh, and then we have, uh, bulimia and nervosa, and that is another eating disorder whereby someone is moving between restriction and then episodes of binge eating as well. And again, a lot of medical complications come along with this disorder, um, and uh, often can go unnoticed as well, uh, because uh, a lot of times the 
the bodily suffering is not as seen, like I said, in anorexia, if there is that weight loss, sometimes that's seen a little bit more readily than someone with bulimia where that um, their weight may not fluctuate as much as um, someone uh, in, with anorexia. Uh, again, not a not a, not the criteria to go by, but it, uh, but saying it out there that that's one of the pieces that people uh, notice more uh, readily. And then uh, we have binge eating disorder, which uh, is marked by episodes of uh, binge uh, eating, and um, and again, it's usually one of those disorders that's very secretive. Or the binges usually happen more in, in secret. Um, and therefore, again, very unnoticed a lot of times. We also have some um, other eating disorders that, that people may uh, hear about or see, uh, orthorexia, which is uh, when someone is uh, highly uh, concerned or you know, very focused on uh, eating, quote-unquote, clean or healthy or um, going on cleanses, whatever it may be, and... Um, and starting to uh, limit food intake based on health concerns. And a lot of times that uh, we often see can move into anorexia, uh, but it's a restrictive form of eating that's uh, for the primary reasons of health concern. And, um, and that tends to be a, a very common one in this younger group. And often I hear parents uh, discuss that Maybe their son or daughter started off that way and then uh, became more restrictive over time. So uh, there are some other eating and feeding disorders, but I won't go into those for the purpose of our podcast this evening. I'll keep it to those primary. Thank you. Um, I want to say once again, thank you very much uh, to the families who are speaking with us today. Um, this is important information and um, I think other families need to hear so they know, you know, hey, you know, either I'm not alone or maybe this is something I need to be concerned about because I'm kind of seeing these things um, within my own adolescent. Um, so let's kind of delve into some of the stories and we'll start with you, Shantima. Um, how is this manifested or how have you seen this within your own family? Um, my daughter with the eating disorder is 27 now. Um, but we first knew about it when she was 15 or 16. Um, I honestly found out when her therapist shared it with me. I didn't know. Otherwise, she didn't tell me. Um, it was shocking to find out, and it still is. I'm not sure. What else would you like to know? Well, what what is the particular eating disorder that your daughter ha has a challenge with? Um, she's bulimic mostly, but sometimes also really restricts and doesn't eat. Mm. So I'm not sure. Okay. And you know, as she was growing up, what were some of the challenges or some of the things once you knew that you saw happening with your daughter? Uh, it's very difficult um, to see her losing weight, not knowing how to help her, not knowing, you know, 
worried about doing the wrong thing. I felt like there just wasn't enough information about it or support. Um, she's been in the hospital multiple times. Thank you. And Dr. Safabia Sethi, with bulimia, can you give us a little more information on that as far as um, what a parent might see um, happening with their child and um, how that might manifest? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, first off, thank you for sharing, Shantima, because I know that uh, it is, I, I really uh, say to each and every one of you that it's really brave to be on and sharing about this because, you know, I can hear, as you said, about not knowing you know, and being really shocked when the therapist told you. Um, That is very common, actually. And um, usually when I work with parents, one of the first things that I have to do immediately or that I uh, want to do immediately is uh, alleviate any guilt around this, you know, uh, for not knowing or not being sure or not getting help on time or whatever else it means, you know, because this is the, all of these disorders and the progression of an eating disorder is very insidious, meaning it starts. And I tell all my clients this, this started um, often as a very helpful thing for them, you know, meaning that it started as maybe a little dieting here or there or being con- being very concerned about their health and wellness. You know, maybe they took a class in school, a health class, and they learned about a certain calorie count or what have you. You know, maybe they read something or maybe they wanted to get in shape or maybe they were trying to uh, become more athletic in their sport. So it's something that you're you know, your daughter or your son doesn't plan on themselves. It's not like anyone chooses this. So it's very insidious, meaning it starts out for them. And I tell all my clients this and parents that this is a brain, they're all brain-based disorders, meaning that they start out a certain behavior maybe, but if it's coupled with their genetics, if it's coupled with um, a pre-existing prior mood disorder, Uh, Maybe they were anxious children, or maybe they had some depression, or maybe you noticed some uh, OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive tendencies and personality, or maybe they even had obsessive compulsive disorder as a child. Maybe there was trauma, right? Maybe there were medical illnesses or things that they had interventions, a lot of interventions with their body for whatever reason, you know, whether that be medical conditions or what have you. So these are all pre-existing, these are all conditions that set the stage, in other words. So it's very, very easy for a parent to not know what's happening because if their child was anxious to begin with or a little obsessive, let's say, all right, so they're running some more or all right, so they're eating some more or all right, they're eating less, you know, and um, or they get interested in something. Oh, isn't that nice? They have this interest and all of a sudden that interest is turning into calorie counting and keeping charts and records and this and that. So it, again, it's uh, it's very easy for a parent to not know the full picture. So it's not the first time, you're not the first parent that I've heard from who says, I had no idea 
what was going on. And with bulimia, as I mentioned um, before, oftentimes with bulimia, sometimes uh, the surface body, what I call the surface body or the physical body doesn't uh, look to change so much initially, you know, because they're moving between restrictive periods and then binging and purging. And so a lot of times, even the purging episodes are hidden, you know, so uh, there's very clever ways of, of purging uh, to that parents are not knowing about, whether that be through uh, throwing up or laxative use and parents are, you know, not going into the bathroom and checking and they don't know what's happening and they're respecting their kids' privacy. Um, and that it can be very easily overlooked. So I just want to put that out there as a whole that it is insidious. It, it is progressive, meaning that um, it, it sneaks in and gets worse and worse and worse without the parents and other family members even knowing what's happening. Usually uh, for especially this age range, peers will notice and, and know what's happening way before our families do. Um, Jenny, would you like to share with us um, your experience with eating disorders in your adolescence? Yeah, so I'm going to start with how I found out and then kind of work forward. And then I'm going to look back because I feel like there's things I should have realized along the way. Um, so we found out when my daughter went to a pediatrician appointment in the 10th grade. And the pediatrician basically handed her a piece of paper to answer some questions. And I didn't know what was on the paper. I wasn't answering the questions. But as she answered the questions... The pediatrician then asked to speak with her alone and then asked to speak with me alone. And that was when I found out she was restricting. So I did not know prior to that appointment. Um, what I did know, though, she was a sophomore in high school. In her freshman year, she's an athlete, and she started her athletics with gymnastics, which we had pulled her out of at a young age because of her focus on her body and her intense focus on perfectionism. And we had moved into soccer and track. And so her freshman year, she, she made varsity both sports in a thousand person school. And she actually got the school record for the 100 her freshman year. And as we moved into her sophomore year, when we looked at how she was performing compared to her freshman year, her freshman year, she had scored 75% of the goals in the soccer team. Her sophomore year, she scored exactly zero goals. And she just couldn't seem to get it in the net. And so her dad and I were trying to encourage her and encourage her, not knowing that she was not fueling her body whatsoever. Mm. So we got referred out to a specialist. We've She's actually been in medical hospital twice, in mental health twice. Today, she's in acute mental health. She's been there for five days. She's going to go to a 30-day residential on Friday. Um, and we actually had to tell her that we were taking her out of soccer and track, like no sports, because she was still trying to perform. And when I look back at 
kind of where she was in life. As early as four or five, she would get these obsessions where I can remember a period of time where she would eat only pancakes. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner, pancakes. And I remember asking the pediatrician, like, is she going to die because that's all we feed her? And then in early elementary, she met a girl who was vegetarian, and she wanted to try to be vegetarian like her friend. And so when I look back, she's always experimented with different kinds of eating. Um, Lately, she has really struggled with balanced eating. And, And quite frankly, her last 30 day stay was early February to early March. And so she's only been home about eight weeks and she's going to go back again. But I missed it completely. Even though there were all of these pieces of signs along the way. And for the longest time, I blamed it on gymnastics until I truly started my own therapy and looked all the way back. And then I realized she's actually had disordered eating for longer than I know. Thank you. That was half of you, Sydney? Yeah, so I was, thank you, Jenny, because um, a few few pieces there I wanted to comment on. One is uh, the other piece that you brought up, personality traits. Right. So along with everything else that I mentioned, that's the other part of the equation, right, that creates the perfect storm, right, is uh, personality traits. So we're looking at perfectionism. Absolutely. We're looking at type A or very high driven uh, personality. We're looking at um, high levels of self-criticism. And, um, and also avoidance, okay? So meaning that the personality type that facing certain challenges, uh, especially emotional challenges, are hard to do. Um, they would rather avoid um, and stay away from confrontation and, uh, and those emotional challenges. And so personality traits have a big piece to do with this because of what makes this so difficult in recovery is that those traits uh, are getting worse, especially in uh, those who are restricting. The personality traits come on even stronger because, as I said, they're brain-based disorders. So uh, the more someone is restricting and they're malnourished, the more their brain is not working properly. So we tend to see higher and higher rates of uh, that self-control and self-criticism and perfectionism. So this makes it a very uh, difficult cycle to break. But uh, as you were mentioning, too, as you look further back, that is what I encourage both my families and my clients to do as well, so that they can understand that for a really long time before food, food is not the problem and body is not the problem, but if they can understand for a long time going back that Perhaps, you know, they were trying to comfort themselves and regulate themselves, especially in their nervous system for a really long time. So I tell my clients, we're really looking at an internal imbalance, right, that you were trying to balance from the outside in. 
And when we do this kind of history, I even have my uh, clients do what I call a nervous system history. You know, most of them can remember being very anxious children. And so if I do this history with them and, and with parents, they all come to say, you know, yes, I do remember this or I do remember that. And exactly as you're saying. And so what I hear is that she was probably a picky eater, right? Um, but part of what she was doing from an early age was um, trying to regulate and control whatever it was that she was feeling from an early age on. You know, so that's often part of the picture. Does that resonate with um, your experience, Jenny? That, that definitely resonates with my experience. And for her, she is absolutely an avoider. Um, and she is so achievement driven and no matter what level she gets to, it's whatever achievement she's done lately versus, you know, kind of look collectively at the achievements. It's for her never good enough. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Dr. Hudson, I just wanted to make a comment on what Jenny just said, if that's okay. Yes. Um, so I just wanted to comment, Jenny, on that piece of that uh, um, no achievement is good enough, you know, uh, to understand that part of what happens with that personality trait, too, is that the eating disorder in and of itself becomes um, or can become the challenge to be good enough at, you know, so that these behaviors um, People get really good. I mean, I can ask my clients, um, okay, uh, you know, I bet you know every calorie count of every item of food if I took you around the entire store. Yes, I do. You know, like they've gotten really good at this because that is something that they can know they can do well and safely do well where all these other things out there feel really out of their control, you know? So um, I, I just wanted to mention that, that that's part of what gets hooked in with the um, habitual behavior that we have to break over time. Right? That's part of the reason why we must con you know, break these behavioral patterns first as we go along with recovery and find other things that they're really good at. I always say they can take that perfectionism, that trait of perfectionism, and place it into recovery, and they can get really good at recovery. We just need to turn that around. Very good point. Thank you. Um, Robin and Dave, do you mind sharing with us? Sure. Um, I can relate to all of these stories. Um, our son is 22. Um, and really looking back at his adolescence, when he was young, he was very overweight. Um, all he would like to do was eat bread and butter and pasta. And he was a very picky eater. Um, the guilt um, does resonate with me because I feel like we allowed that. Um, again, it was, you know, let him try something at dinner, but if he didn't eat it, all right, just give him the bread and butter. And, you know, it's, 
in looking back at other things that he ate, you know, or drank soda, all these things that attributed to him being very overweight um, made him, I believe, very insecure with himself. He uh, was bullied a lot um, as a, you know, a young kid. And it was seventh or eighth grade, I think, when he started football um, and just getting him really involved in a sport to maybe help him gain some confidence and, uh, you know, be active, be more active. And he really took off with that. Once he got into high school, he was on the JV team and on the varsity team. And probably by the time he was a, a sophomore, he really slimmed down. But I never saw him restrict eating. I always felt like he was eating healthier. He gave up soda on his own. He, he, he was very good about what he ate and he watched what he ate, but he wasn't so picky anymore. He was eating a lot more. So I never even gave it a thought that he would have an eating disorder. Um, and then he was 220 pounds playing football in his senior year. He is now at 143 pounds, and we really noticed it, I believe, when he went off to college because we just didn't see him every day. <clears throat> he did two years locally, um, and he lived home, and he started vaping, and vaping, we felt, was making him really thin. Um, we didn't, again, see the restricting at the time. And he would tell us he would eat at school. Um, but again, he was very, he was becoming this very healthy eater about what he ate. And then when he went off to college in his third year, that's when it really, we really started noticing him losing more weight. And then he ended up telling us about him, him restricting himself of eating but it really wasn't until we forced the issue and really <clears throat> talked to him about it that you're losing a lot of weight and we're concerned and we did have him see um, a therapist and his doctor but again he went back to school we tried getting him into a program out there and then this kind of hit with the COVID. And now he's home, but he's in an IOP program all online, um, which seems to be helping. But from the eating, um, the restricting is not so bad anymore. But it's, you know, the measuring what he puts in his body, knowing every single calorie, what everything is. Um, allowing himself maybe one cheat day a week. Um, he's, he's just very, very self-conscious about what he eats. And then he tells us he will think about what he's, what he's going to eat. And then he obsesses about what he's going to eat. Already we're talking about making pizza sometime and how we're going to make the dough. And he's already thinking all right, how many calories, you know, are, are in that, is in that dough. Um, when he's eating, he eats, he eats a lot. So it's confusing 
because he'll eat healthy, but he's eating quite a bit. And he's been also trying to give up the vaping. He's been wearing a patch, but it's, he hasn't really put on any more weight. He's at 143. So, and he's working out a lot. So it's just confusing to see him eating. Um, you know, like at dinner tonight, he had two big helpings of um, pork and corn casserole. and um, But he's not gaining. He's not gaining weight. Do you have anything to add to that? Um, I guess the only thing that I would say is, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that, you know, pretty much all of Ben's life, he's got kind of a... Uh, personal characteristic of he always struggled trying to do anything in moderation. He was always 150%, whatever he did. And, you know, that's manifesting itself now with his eating and, you know, <laughs> sitting down for a meal, if he's got to make it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a simple meal. He'll have 10 pots and pans out for lunch. You know, it's like, you can't have a sandwich, you know, it's, so he struggles just mentally trying to even figure out little things that we take for granted. Yeah. That's definitely something that I've seen. Um, and you know, he very low self-esteem, um, low self-confidence. And I don't know if that is part of that, which leads to, it. um, and you know, and you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I guarantee you he knows exactly how many calories, you know, he knows exactly what his intake is on everything he's doing. And it's, you know, he's told us it's gotten to a point where it's just, it's consuming. Him, yeah. You know, That's right. mentally. Right. The good thing is, is he talks to us and we do ask him a lot of questions. I do wish I knew sooner, you know, but um, I guess, you know, it's like the signs, you just, you, you didn't, I didn't think it was that big of an issue. And now that it is, um, he has not been hospitalized yet, but that, that is also a fear. I, I, um, I, I feel like if this IOP program doesn't work, you know, there's just it's the unknown of not knowing, you know, what's next. Thank you very much for, for sharing your, um, your challenge that's going on right now. Um, Dr. Safibia said, can you speak a little bit to the confusion that does go on with, with restricting? Yes. Yeah. So thank you, Robin and Dave. There's so much in there that I'd like to speak about. I don't even know if we'll have time because you brought up a lot of different um, ends of, uh, of what we want to touch on here that I think is very important. Um, so I'm going to start with the emphasis on what you said, Robin, and then Dave, you echo this piece of like, oh, when he's eating, he's eating a lot, you know, and what's happening with that? How could someone eat that amount and, and still not show anything? When restore, I'm going to go back to say again that um, anorexia, the more that we know about it, the more that we're studying uh, and starting to understand the uh, neurobiological makeup of anorexia, we're, we're coming to understand more and more 
about uh, wondering what is happening in someone's metabolism that when they start to eat again, that they can eat large amounts at times and still not gain any weight. So sometimes what's happening there is that in the very beginning, someone after severe restriction, that someone's body is over-processing the food. It's over-metabolizing. So we, it's in a hyper-metabolic state. So meaning that in the beginning, Sometimes for someone to regain their weight or their refeeding uh, that they talk about often in in, uh, patient programs, they need thousands of calories actually to gain a, a pound or two. What normally in someone without this happening, right, without this disorder, uh, that would be no problem for us to, you know, we wouldn't be able to consume that much. We, we, and, and even if we, and if we did, we would be gaining the weight quickly uh, with that. But for someone that whose body has been in restriction for a long time, it takes um, a lot more calorically to restabilize their body. So that's part of what you're seeing. Um, So I just want to clear that confusion that his body is going to burn and need a huge amount to begin to move him toward baseline. And that goes for anyone that's struggling with anorexia. Uh, The issue here is that when we have exercise in the picture, Now we're talking about a body and a brain that needs all these excessive calories to even create a pound or two in a body. And now we're talking about someone who's burning off those two pork chops or corn or whatever it is. Um, So one of the hardest things to regulate during recovery is uh, when someone is exercising a great deal, I have to create a lot of um, movement uh, toward compromise with my clients uh, in the process of recovery that, you know, as far as I I want them to have some healthy movement, but uh, anything more during this time when they're trying to uh, get their body strength and internal wellness and balance again, anything more than a couple of days, especially if it's aerobic activity, is going to start interfering with their recovery because it's hard enough for them to eat uh, to begin with. And what, what we start seeing with the exercise is what we call compensatory behavior, you know, so they're compensating for the food intake. Uh, remember I mentioned about that intense self-criticism and guilt. So I can guarantee you what gets, what, what is flooding through his mind as he eats right now or anyone else, any of the other, uh, uh, parents here, you may have heard this or seen this even, but uh, as someone begins to eat again, what's happening is flooding, uh, we call it sort of the eating disorder noise there in the brain that, that creates immense criticism and guilt uh, about that meal. So, but the way that that gets compensated is, oh, I'll just work that off you know, tomorrow, or I'll just throw that up in the case of bulimia, or I'll just take a laxative, or I'll, you see, so these are all compensating behaviors, compensatory behaviors. So that's what happens there. And I do want to say that what he is sharing with you about 
the thoughts, right, is um, absolutely accurate, that he is all consumed by this. And that's when we know that it has crossed a line from where it started for him, which was maybe out of health and wellness, right? Um, trying to lose some of that weight, especially coming from a bully background on a, a body, which is an awful, uh, a, a terribly, terribly awful instigator of uh, eating disorders. Uh, and part of the reason that is the case is that a child is drawn to the external appearance or surface of their body, body image long before they ever need to be, right? So my heart breaks for that. And, uh, and therefore, what happens is, you know, uh, someone in his case, you know, has that memory uh, of never wanting to be in a larger body again. So he, it sounds like there's a real strong body image component happening there for him to move away from that. Um, and so, yes, his consuming, the consuming quality, the all-consuming quality there in his mind, he's not alone with that at all. That is absolutely across the board what happens for every person. And they know that switch. Uh, as a matter of fact, my clients will tell me, I know that I'm recovering because I'm not thinking about it 24-7. I'm not planning my meals like this 24-7, you know. Um, but this is part of the reason why a meal plan is so important. And for anyone in recovery to follow the structure of a meal plan by a dietitian, because following the structure of a meal plan allows them to at least let go of some of that mental noise about what am I going to eat? How am I going to eat it? How am I going to plan it? You know, and this is where I usually ask families to please um, do what you can to step in and help with those meal plans, to help uh, plan the meals with them, to help cook them with them if they'll allow that. Um, this is a really important piece uh, to, to do along the way. Um, you talked about the fact uh, that uh, in many of these cases, there was some type of trauma maybe early on. And just, you know, out of curiosity with uh, Shanti Ma and Jenny, um, did you notice or um, realize any type of trauma that happened early on with your children? So, um, Dr. Hudson, I've looked back as hard as I can, and I don't know that I can find a specific trauma in childhood. Um, what I do know is even back to infancy, um, and, and I don't know how this really relates. So my child has also been diagnosed with a personality disorder, so that piece exists. But even as an infant, she would cry for hours. Mm. And I can remember thinking she'll, she just can't get a hold of herself when she amps up emotionally. And so I think that that emotional dysregulation has been there. And as she got further into school, and school was more competitive, and there were more people, and even though 
she performed stellar. She puts a lot of pressure on herself and she never learned how to regulate. And honestly, um, it's still a struggle today for her, um, that regulation piece. So when she goes to, to battle, she always goes to a co-occurring facility for both a personality or a mood disorder and an eating disorder, even though the manifestation of the eating disorder is what's really front and center, if that makes sense. Yes. So it's almost like she uses that as a tool to quell the other one. And the hardest thing, um, Dr. Safi Bassetti, I wanted to mention this, as a parent of a 17-year-old who wants independence, stepping in and telling that 17-year-old, this is what you're going to eat for breakfast. This is what you're going to eat for lunch. This is what you're going to eat for dinner. And if you can't finish it, you have to drink a boost. Is a very tough thing to deliver. And they say food is medicine. And, and you think there's got to be something else they can give her to fix this so we can get the food in. But I can actually see when she gets to where she's eating better, you can see, and she will tell me that the voice in her head that talks to her about eating gets quieter when she's actually eating. And the, the less she eats and the less she eats, the louder that voice gets to her. And what we can't lick right now is how do you make it stay quiet? That's the hardest part. If we could, we can get it quiet and sustain for a period of time. And then when she takes over her own eating, she battles with that voice, but she wants the independence. Um, so this is the hardest part with recovery with an adolescent um, or and a young adult uh, it is because, once again, their developmental task is to develop and individuate from us, right? And th- this is something food and uh, beginning to feed themselves and what have you, especially when you get into middle school and high school years, is something that they're doing on their own, you know, aside from maybe, you know, us giving them dinner or giving them a lunch or whatever. They've been on their own with this. This is a task they've been on their own with. So of course, um, this is something that they feel that they can handle and should be able to handle. The problem is what I say to my clients at that age is, I know that you can handle it, but guess what? Your eating disorder can't. And right now, your eating disorder is primary here. And until your voice gets louder in there, until your healthy brain gets larger, until the part of your brain that's, that's healthy and knows who you are and knows you could do this, until I hear that more in my office, this is what we have to do. And we're not going to negotiate around this. So I don't negotiate with the eating disorder. As a matter of fact, I have a chair on wheels, you know, and, uh, and when I hear them moving into that eating disorder brain, I roll to one side. I'm like, oh, here we are. I'm like, here I am with the eating disorder, you know, and then I roll to the other side. I want to hear your healthy brain now because I know it's still there. And I understand exactly what you mean by you can hear when she's different. 
And what you're hearing and what you're looking at is how she's been nourishing herself. So the more food is medicine, 100, 110%. Can't get any stronger with that. Food is the medicine for this. Regulated food, structured food, consistent food, consistency. So we're not talking about um, a meal one day and then all of a sudden restriction the next. Because now we're talking about a brain and a nervous system that you want to talk about dysregulation. Forget it. As a matter of fact, um, I get hesitant to even uh, want to know what's happening yet underlying when someone is in uh, heavy restriction because their mood will 100% be dysregulated because of what's happening in their brain. So when people tell me, uh, sometimes parents uh, will get confused by that and say, well, I don't know what's primary. My, my daughter or my son has depression or they're so severely depressed or they're so severely anxious. And I say, yes, that may be the co-occurring condition. I 100% agree, especially when I do the history and I hear that that's been there for a long time. However, I said, until we get food regulated, until their brain is uh, nutritionally stabilized, we will not be able to tell what's happening underlying there. We will not be able to tell what's, what, what is really going on mood-wise and what we have to maybe treat or not treat. You know, So um, food has to be regulated and consistent, and our brain has to get consistent nourishment for their whole nervous system to feel regulated and for that mood to be regulated. Very good points. And Shantima, uh, the same question to you. Um, so as far as we can figure out where she doesn't have a lot of memories um, from when she was younger, and we've really tr worked on trying to figure out to help her recover what what happened, what led to this. Um, I didn't see it at the time, but she was emotionally abused by my husband for all of her life. And I think that was a big contributing factor. It was just trauma after trauma, I think, a lot of the time. Um, also, she had, looking back, I can see that she was anxious even as a very young child. So I think um, she was anxious a lot of the time. And um, as Jenny said, didn't learn how to self-regulate. Um, and I think, you know, this was a type, a way to control things maybe. And as a coping mechanism also. So I just wanted to make a, a comment just on that, though. I, I do uh, just want to caution that we do have to be careful in understanding that because this is can be a very common piece, again, that families search for, you know, the why, the why, the why, the why. And as I said, there are multiple contributing factors. As a matter of fact, with an eating disorder, we call them a multifaceted disorder, meaning that there are several, several uh, things that are, are at play here, so many actually. So what I say, uh, only about 50% of the population have some sort of traumatic events, 50% don't. 
Okay, so that's very important to know because it, to me, in recovery right now, uh, at these stages when we're really trying to just get someone's um, brain and body stabilized, uh, I, I don't investigate that. You know, I'm not investigating what, the, what kind of why is happening because I actually think it can induce a lot of guilt in families, you know, with things that have been past. That's the past. And right now I want to work on the present and getting your adolescent or your young adult healthy and strong in the present, right, in body, brain, and back to their life. And once that happens and once that's stabilized, that's when we can start to um, understand the other contributing factors. And I say to clients all the time, you know, when they're go going, having an eating disorder and going through recovery, quite honestly, is traumatic enough. So we kind of don't have to add in a lot of other layers. Um, but if they themselves, you know, really come to that understanding that, yes, uh, there was, you know, emotional, physical abuse or sexual abuse that may have contributed or some sort of other trauma, that's, um, that's all part of the recovery process. But they can't even handle going into that kind of information. Um, until their nervous system and their brain is functioning properly and they're in a more stable place. So I, I don't even go there in recovery until, um, until I can get someone's, someone's grounding there first. Yes. So I think, just think that's important to know as families too. And um, you actually lead into kind of, um, I want to veer off just a little bit because a word that I've uh, mentioned several times um, while we've been having this conversation is the word guilt and the guilt that um, the person with the eating disorder feels and the family members. Um, there can be, you know, a tremendous amount of feelings of guilt around what is happening. And um, I wanted you to kind of speak to that, and as far as the guilt and and its place and how to move through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't think there's any place for guilt. <laughs> Not that it isn't there, but meaning is there a place for it? Meaning is it helpful in any way? Uh, no, because actually guilt is always about something in the past that we really can't do much of. It's always a would have, a should have, a could have, right? So I like to bring uh, both my client and my uh, families into the present moment, which really says, um, and I say that the way I work primarily with my clients is through the door of self-compassion. And that's how I work with my families as well. Okay. Because what's happening here is everyone is hard on themselves. And the first step in moving forward in recovery is understanding and self-understanding that this is not their fault. This is not your fault, right? This is what is in this very moment. And it takes a process together. They, they need you and you need them. And part of their healing is going to be hearing you compassionately for you know, forgive yourself for, for any uh, things that you didn't see. And you could even share that, you know, I encourage families all the time to please share that piece, you know, just have a conversation on, hey, you know, I wished I would have seen maybe some of this, um, but, you know, but I didn't, but I want you to know I see you now. 
I see what's happening now, you know, and that's, that's, that's what we can do to start to move forward is we can hold it as it's showing up right now. And the number one thing is hope. And I know it's hard when you see this back and forth process, but one of the things I ask my clients and I tell my families and I investigate it with them too is I want to know what their idea of recovery was or is. Because if they think it's going to be a linear, straight line, it's not happening. It's going to be up and down and all around. It's going to be a hard path. It's one of the hardest things that someone can do. And I, I set that straight from the beginning with my clients. And I like to set it straight with any family members that I work with as well. This can be a long process. I can't uh, always say how long. The longer someone has been in it, the longer it will take to recover. And so hope is is something that I know is hard to hold on to when you see someone you love suffering. But it's the number one thing um, as a parent. So I, I, that's where I say, you know, there's no place. Guilt will be, unfortunately, will close the door on hope. So, so really, it's something that I, I really ask. I know as hard as it is, I ask that, you know, you move into a space of coming to this moment. You know, parenting is one of the hardest jobs. I say it all the time that it it is the hardest thing in the world to, you know, to raise a human being, okay? <laughs> and uh, we're all struggling with it on some level, right? And some of us are going to have more struggles with it uh, than others with our kids, but we're all going to have a struggle. You tell me one parent who has a teenager or a young adult who's not struggling with something, then I'm going to tell you they're not being truthful, you know? So, uh, so it's a hard job and it's hard enough without us beating ourselves down. So I apply and I offer the same skills of self-compassion that I work with my clients with to my families as well. And I, and I highly encourage that. And one of the simplest ways of doing that for yourself is if, if I broke all of you up into, you know, separate groups right now, what would you say to one another? You'd be supportive. You'd be kind. You wouldn't say, how dare you, Jenny, that you didn't see that years ago or Shanti. How come you didn't see that? That's ridiculous. You know, how come you didn't see that? Or Robin or you would say, I'm so sorry. I, I know what you're going through. I could just imagine. My kid didn't have that, but they have this. You know, you would be supportive and you would be kind. So I ask you all, if you, you know, treat yourself the same way as you would if you ran into a parent on the street that said, my kid is really struggling with this, what would you say? You know, if you ran into your friend, what would you say? You probably have friends you've said it to a million times before, you know? You wouldn't criticize them and you wouldn't tell them you would have, should have, could have. You would say to them, let's do this now, you know? So that's what I say. There's my spiel on guilt. It has no place in recovery right now as parents. Perfect, yes. Um, one thing that I want to highlight that you said um, because I feel like it is so important to understand and to go into it with the mindset that it is not linear and it's all over the place and there are ups 
and downs, and it is normal for there to be ups and downs and sideways. And it's okay. It's a part of the journey. You're still doing it right. It's just a part of the journey. It's not going to be linear. That's right. Um, It's such a huge uh, understanding to have from the very beginning. And that's why it's one of the first things I tell both clients and families is that, you know, I ask my parents, you know, please, you know, stay with me on this ride, you know, because it's going to be a wild ride. And I need them right? Just as much as they're reaching out for my support and my expertise, I need them to be my partners here as well. And to understand that um, it's going to go up and down and it's going to go sideways too. And that's important to, to know from the start. Um, As we we close this time together. Are there any final thoughts or any hindsight or um, words of encouragement that any of the parents might have um, that they want to share? Yes, Jenny. I just want to share that, um, that I want to go back to that. It's not linear piece because after my daughter's first hospital stay, I thought, wow, like she's back up to her weight and we're fixed. And this particular hospital stay, she actually asked for, which um, sounds interesting, but it's encouraging because she's owning her journey. Yep. So um, because I didn't know and because it's so hard to check in with her, we've developed a process. Instead of me saying, did you eat today or what did you eat or, or, you know, her in her words, interrogating her. We start our day and we end our day the same way. So the first thing that I say to her every morning is three feelings. And she tells me what those feelings are. And I say, do you care to elaborate? Sometimes she says no. But if she says, I'm excited. And actually tonight she said, I'm excited because I'm going to go get help in this program that I picked. And then we actually go to a goal for the day. And then we go to three pieces of gratitude. And every morning we do that. And then every evening we do it as well. And whenever she says the goal for the day, at the end of the day, we determine whether or not she made it. And I participate as well. So I do my own goal for the day. And then when we do the gratitude piece, no matter what her gratitude statements are, like if one of them is, I'm thankful for my dogs. My response is, they love you. Or if she says, I'm thankful for you, I say, I love you. If she says, I'm thankful for my bedroom, I say, it loves you. And so that has helped me to check in with her. And I learn at least about the emotional piece. And then I know what to work on throughout the day that helps me to help her help herself. That's beautiful, Jenny. Love it. I love it. It's a really beautiful structure, too. And if I could just make another point there, um, along the lines of compassion, right, and holding compassion for yourself and and for your child, uh, it speaks to the kind of communication that is also needed through this recovery process, meaning that 
Uh, we don't want to be on top of them as far as did you eat, did you not eat, did you? But, but rather, you know, part of what you're doing is you're, you're giving her a break too from having to talk about the eating disorder all the time, right? You're letting her talk about herself. So if there's, that's one piece of compassionate advice that I often like to give is please don't forget who they are underneath this whole thing. Don't forget who they are. They have hopes and dreams and aspirations and goals. Keep asking what those are. You know, exactly like you're saying, Jenny, there, what's the goal for the day? What's the intention for the day? You know, what do you hope for next year? Where do you want to see yourself next year? You know, this is part, this age group, should be forward thinking, right? And an eating disorder stops their life temporarily. And we want to constantly encourage what's next? What do you hope for? What do you want? I know what you like. You like this. Do you still like this? Do you want this? You know, um, these are all things about themselves that we don't want to forget that they are there still. Would anyone else like to share? No, I just, I feel that that was a very helpful piece because I tend to be more on the interrogating side of, you know, what did you eat today? What did, and it's, I never mean to be, I don't want to be like that, but it's, it's the approach. And so now in the morning, I'll, I'll say good morning and, you know, how are you feeling? Um, I try to be more cognizant of those types of questions um, because I, I've sensed where he doesn't want to talk sometimes and he'll get that attitude and I'll be like, it's the way I say it. And so thank you for sharing that, Jenny, because that, that is something I need to work on. Um, showing more compassion towards him, even though I, I feel it in my heart, but the way it comes out isn't always right. Thank you. Shantima, is there anything you want to say? Uh, and I already said one of the things that I was going to say, which is to remember that your child is not this eating disorder or whatever you see the major issue to be. They're not that. Try to concentrate on the positives and those will help to strengthen those good things and the things that they're interested in just by, just by you remembering those things and thinking those about them instead of thinking, seeing them as the eating disorder. Um, I also wanted to mention that I think at least for me, part of not addressing it earlier might have been not wanting to see it. You don't want to, you don't want your child to be dealing with this. So there might have been clues that you overlooked because you didn't want to see it. Um, so I would just say to parents of teenagers, be brave, <laughs> be brave, ask, ask questions. Um, and face what's really going on. Very good advice. Thank you.
I just, I, I just want to say thank you again um, for sharing uh, so honestly and so openly. And my hope is, and my belief is that this will help others um, in their understanding or awareness of eating disorders. And um, hopefully it will encourage them to be brave. And um, as what's been said several times by you all and, and by Dr. Safi Biasetti, the compassion piece, not only for the adolescents, but for yourselves to understand that we're all humans and we're all trying to do our best. And we want what is best for our, our children. And so um, just moving forward through this journey with hope, as Anne said, and with an open mind and, and compassion for ourselves and for our children. Thank you all. Thank you so much for this time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for your honesty and your sharing. And uh, thank you, Dr. Hudson, for organizing this and having me on. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Zeninish copyrighted podcast and website offer opinions of Dr. Lakeisha Hudson, Dr. Kiki Zeninish LLC, and or guests. Content is for information only, not medical advice. Consult a professional for health concerns. Opinions are personal and do not reflect workplaces. Privacy is a priority. All names may be altered for confidentiality. Not for legal use. No guarantee of accuracy. No doctor-patient relationship established. For errors, email 423.4.doctor.kiki at gmail.com.